Welcome to Appointed. I am very pleased to join you from the shores of the Kitchissippi, the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek, and I'm super excited to be joined by someone I have known for a very long time who does incredible work and uh, is leading the way on many of the issues we're going to talk about today, particularly in the area of mandatory minimum penalties. So welcome to you, Deborah Parks, amazing professor extraordinaire at UBC and uh, scholar for many, many years in this, and someone who has uh, uh, all kinds of awards, uh, credentials, all all of the above. <laughs> no so, need, no very- need to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just really a delight to be here, um, uh, Senator Pate uh, Kim, who uh, someone I've known for. Uh, I was just saying to um, to your interns that I was speaking to that uh, we met in the late. 1990s, actually, I think it was 1996, and uh, and have been, you know, comrades ever since. Uh, you know, have a lot of um, a lot of the same concerns about the criminal legal system and its impact on marginalized people and the harm that it does in the name of trying to make our community safer. And so, it's just. Um, really an honor to be here and to um, to discuss with you important issues and to know that that uh, you're working on these issues in the, the halls of power where where uh, change can be made. Uh, it's very slow as we are seeing, but I uh, am delighted to to be here and thank you so much. I'm coming to you today from uh, what is now called New Westminster. It's the traditional ANSEED unceded ancestral territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and the uh, Musqueam. Uh, And where I live is very near to the grounds of the old BC penitentiary. And uh, it's a place where uh, there are now condos and uh, and houses and a restaurant that's called a castle, which has actually got the facade of the old prison. And so for me, living in in these territories, in these um, indigenous territories, stolen lands, and also in close proximity to a place that um, that was the uh, prime uh, place of incarceration, of long-term uh, torturous incarceration of uh, mostly men uh, over uh, over many years, uh, and is still we haven't really reckoned with uh, those kinds of places in our midst, and and what we do to try to 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 do better now, and we we instead build all kinds of new prisons, but uh, but we are still uh, perpetuating the same kinds of colonial um, racist. Uh, harms and uh, so uh, it's, it's from that context that that I come to you and I try to think in my work about how uh, we can truly advance reconciliation. We talk about that and decolonization and what that means for someone working um, uh, with criminal law and trying to to uh, change criminal laws, but also being part of a system that is very harmful. So it's that that tension and it's something maybe we can talk more about throughout our, our discussion today, but it's a real uh, pleasure to be here, Kim. Thank you. No, it's, uh, it's our pleasure. The pleasure is ours. So I want to dive right into the fact that um, 
we know that many people in Canada have no idea the history of mandatory minimum penalties, which is one of the primary things we want to talk about today. And that when the criminal code was first created back in the 1800s, late 1800s, there it was estimated that there were perhaps six mandatory minimum penalties. And that, na- that number remained about the same until 1995 when the push from the right, if I can call it that, and the the rush of everybody to compensate and not have more uh, pushes from the right was that we actually started to see them go up from the 10 or fewer that had been up in for the first 100 years of the criminal code to now we're over 70 mandatory minimum penalties. And even though we know that nine in 10 Canadians have said, uh, according to a Department of Justice review, a survey, that they would like to see a repeal of mandatory minimum penalties, even though it was in the 2015 platform of the Liberal government, even though it has been recommended by uh, virtually every law commission, sentencing commission, and uh, heaven knows how many others, certainly the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, the TRC, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. As we're having this discussion, we still have uh, mandatory minimum penalties. And even the bill, Bill C-5, that has been proposed well, not just proposed, it's been passed by the House of Commons, the Senate's about to deal with it in the fall, uh, only repeals partially uh, 20, uh, well, fully 13 and partially another uh, seven, I think it is. Anyway, about 20 of the mandatory minimum penalties. And we know that the last time the federal government looked at even things like the murder provision, aside from in Bissonnette, and we'll get to that in a minute, uh, or maybe a few minutes, <laughs> the, the reality is that um, virtually every court has said this is a problem. So how do we fare internationally? Um, you know, you, you've done this work, you've done the comparisons. Compared to other countries, what's the situation in terms of mandatory minimum penalties and the life sentence? Yeah, no, it's a really important question. And historically, uh, other jurisdictions around the world have not used mandatory minimum penalties uh, very much. Um, again, when I'm I'm generally talking about countries we often compare ourselves to. So countries in Europe, uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, you know, some of those countries that have similar, uh, uh, you know, kind of legal systems and, uh, and, and similar histories, including of, of colonization and imposition of criminal laws. Um, and, and so they have not been used historically very much other than in some cases for murder. What we look at the US, it's, a, it's an extreme outlier in the use of mandatory minimum penalties. And if they were to, if they were to deliver on their promise of deterring crime, then the U.S. would have the lowest crime rate in uh, the world. And in fact, it's really uh, not that way at all. As we know, um, the U.S. has you know incredibly harsh laws that are not delivering public safety for um, for Americans and are in fact. Um, massively incarcerating uh, racialized people, African, African-Americans. African um, it's well known. And there has been some move to try to roll that back um, for a variety, in a variety of states. When you look beyond the U.S., though, and I think that's where we should maybe focus because the U.S., like I said, is such an extreme outlier on these issues. You look at a country like New Zealand. And New Zealand is a country that also has the colonial, um, you know, legal system Im- imposed on indigenous uh, peoples on Maori uh, in that in in the in those territories, and has 
um, massive uh, incarceration of uh, Maori people. And they um, did not have very many mand- mandatory minimum penalties. And then in um, under a, a conservative government, they brought in a three strikes kind of law, which is a which is a certain kind of mandatory minimum penalty, a very harsh kind of mandatory minimum penalty. Well, with the, the government, uh, the government in power now in uh, New Zealand, they're they're looking at that again. They are saying, in fact, they're, they've brought in a bill to repeal that entire um, regime of imposing a three strikes, harsh mandatory um, minimum sentence regime. And, uh, and you know, predictably, like here, they're facing some opposition from conservative quarters, um, but they're also moving forward on that. And they are um, committed to meaningful decolonization and reconciliation um, in their legal system. And so I, it's quite heartening to see that, that movement in a, in a place like New Zealand with, with similar, um, you know, uh, similar legal system and, and some of the similar uh, issues of systemic racism that we have here. Um, and you could look at other countries too. Even those who do have uh, mandatory minimum penalty. So many countries in Europe, um, some that have a mandatory life sentence as we do for murder, um, it's not truly mandatory in many of those countries because there is a safety valve that allows um, both for the for the life sentence for murder, but also for other uh, mandatory minimum penal- penalties, allows judges to actually depart from that and to not go with the mandatory minimum penalty if it would be unjust to do so. And instead, we have a situation where um, notwithstanding it being a finding of disproportionality by a judge, um, the sentence is, is going to be disproportionate, it's going to be going to be unjust, judges still have to order those mandatory penalties in Canada unless it's one of those cases where they have found it to be unconstitutional. And that requires a finding of gross disproportionality. And so, and the gross disproportionality is a higher standard. And, and, and even with that higher standard, many judges, as you said, here in Canada have found many of the mandatory minimum penalties to be unconstitutional. And to my mind, it's just a matter of time before um, we have many more of those decisions. And it's really not a good way to make policy, to be waiting for courts to uh, piecemeal find these laws unconstitutional. And, uh, and so Bill C-5 is, um, you know, obviously one step in that direction, but it's uh, woefully inadequate in my view, view to address even just the basic constitutional issues that are at play here. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to focus back on mandatory minimum for and the life sentence for a minute. We, we know that in Bissonnette, um, the Supreme Court of Canada said that multiple parole and eligibility periods as part of a life sentence are unconstitutional. They refer to Luxton, which is, uh, you know, a 1990, 91 decision, if I recall correctly, uh, where they actually looked at the life sentence and said, uh, and you'll correct me if I'm misstating, but they basically said that what saved the constitutionality of the life sentence at that time was the fact that we had a faint hope clause, which of course was repealed a decade ago. And so I'm curious as to what your what your thoughts are in terms of the future of the life sentence in Canada um, and what you make of the fact that the, um, the Supreme Court of Canada didn't comment particularly on that, except to refer to Luxton, but not to talk about the fact that the faint hope clause has been repealed and to compare that also to other jurisdictions and and some of the changes that have happened um, around, for instance, young people and other areas in, in terms of um, murder, you know, convictions for murder and 
you know, what you think we should be doing and what you think the um, Supreme Court of Canada is signaling to us in, in the Bissonnette decision about the life sentence. I, uh, another really good question. No, it, it certainly, um, I mean, Luxton, going back to 1990, uh, that was, the, yeah, that was the, the life 25 for first degree murder that was um, before the court in that case and whether that was unconstitutional. Mandatory life sentence and no possibility of parole for at least 25 years. The only reason we had that um, very harsh by international standards um, at the time and now remaining a very harsh uh, mandatory uh, minimum uh, sentence was because um, it was a compromise when we abolished capital punishment to bring in a very harsh regime, but it had to have some um, hope uh, within that system. It had to have some ability for a court to review whether it was it was still appropriate to be um, having someone in jail after 15 years if they'd got a life uh, sentence with 25-year parole and eligibility period, which is the mandatory for first-degree murder. And the court, as you said, did say in that case, look, there's a faint hope clause here. There's, and they don't call it that. It's a, it's a judicial review procedure, but it's a, there's, there's a possibility of meaningful review to determine whether the circumstances are the same as someone who was 18 years old or 19 years old and who was now in their 30s and, um, and whether it still serves um, all of us. Um, our society to be keeping that person warehoused and caged, um, often in very harsh conditions, um, at great expense to to Canadians, both in fiscal and human terms, in terms of family members, in terms of, of the cost of incarceration, children being without parents, all these kinds of um, impacts were what should be addressed in a, in a faint hope review. And in any event, that was abolished in uh, 2011, as you said. And so now we don't have that. Now we have this remaining very harsh regime. And the thing about the Bissonnette case that I think is most important, obviously it dealt with that very particular regime of when you were to stack or make consecutive these parole and eligibility periods, amounting to something like a 50-year period of no parole or or a 75-year period. And the court said that was unconstitutional, but they did so in a way by saying, it's not just the length of the the sentence that we have to talk about. It's the nature of it. If we are imposing sentences that are cruel um, and inhumane and counterproductive by their very nature, we need to, th- those are unconstitutional sentences and they don't serve, they don't serve the interests of justice. They don't serve Canadians and they are, they don't comport with our values. Um, and, and, you know, obviously when you're talking about murder, it's really important to um, always keep in mind that we're talking about the most tragic thing that can really happen to someone, right? Is to, to lose their life in a, you know, in a violent way. And, you know, when someone is, has done so, or at least been convicted of doing so intentionally, and this is to say nothing of wrongful convictions as well, which is a whole other area that are, are made much harder to address by mandatory minimum sentences uh, and are actually are made more likely by mandatory minimum sentence. And I'll just say that because of the power that it gives to prosecutors to, um, to um, get guilty pleas to what, even when someone is, is innocent. But in any event, all of this is, um, is I think, ripe for reconsideration by by courts and by the Supreme Court, um, the nature of our life sentence that is mandatory. We know much more now about the impact of these sentences than we did back in 1976 when the regime was enacted and back in 1990 uh, when uh, Luxon was decided. The charter was also in its infancy, I would say. The charter analysis has changed. We have a much more um, robust 
analysis of what constitutes cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. And I think it is, um, it's unfortunate that we're probably going to be waiting for a court to pronounce on, on the life sentence more generally and on, um, on the constitutionality of these sentences uh, rather than having Parliament act. I think Parliament does have an important opportunity now to act to uh, remove these life sentences. Can I just say one thing about young people, Kim, because you mentioned that. Here in Canada, and this is something that's, I think, not very well known, we impose life sentences on young people who are convicted of murder. So someone who is 15 years old, 16 years old, 17 years old, who obviously is involved in, sometimes as not even the um, main perpetrator, but as part of a group and involved in someone losing their life in a, in a, um, in a, in a, in a circumstance that, that is, um, amounts to murder or is convicted of murder and under our law, that person um, can get a life sentence. And I'm just doing research on this, and I have a wonderful student reviewing uh, cases for me right now. And this is just the reported cases, and it is absolutely not all of the cases, because many cases are not reported. But she has found 59 cases just since 2008, where we have Canadian courts have imposed life sentences on young people. That's just since, since 2008. And the reason we chose looking back to 2008 is because that's when the Supreme Court of Canada decided that in a case called DB, that um, a reverse onus or um, basically making it uh, that's what, that a life sentence for a young person could um, could be presumed to apply in cases like murder. And it was up to the young person to rebut that presumption and to prove that they shouldn't be subject to a life sentence. The court said that was unconstitutional for the presumption of innocence and for the impact that that would have. But they still... Um, upheld the life sentence at the time, as long as the Crown could prove that it was appropriate. And so we now have many, many cases of young people um, where the Crown does prove to the court satisfaction that this person should get a life sentence. And those, to my mind, are some of the most um, concerning sentences in Canadian law, and also, I think, the most vulnerable to a constitutional challenge. Interestingly, my student could not find a single constitutional challenge to that regime since 2008, which I think is, um, if, if criminal lawyers are out there, constitutional lawyers are out there, I would love to be in touch to talk about a test case on this issue, because uh, to my mind, it is uh, very concerning that we um, we, we, we continue to meet out these sentences. And on the reasoning in Bisonet, going back to that, and I'll, and I'll finish here, is that these sentences by their very nature are cruel and unusual. They are un unusual internationally. Many jurisdictions do not impose life sentences on young people. Again, leave the Americans out of it because they are an extreme outlier on this issue. Um, but looking at other jurisdictions, it's relatively rare to impose um, uh, life sentences on young people. It certainly does happen in some jurisdictions, but not ones with a robust constitutional structure like ours. And uh, and I think it's a great shame in Canada. We know, we know that young people, their brain development isn't even fully complete till they're in their mid-20s. Um, and the whole purpose mm -hmm. of a Youth Criminal Justice Act and the whole purpose of having incarceration as a last resort for young people, which is a very basic principle of our criminal legal system is completely thwarted by imposing a life sentence on a young person. That means that someone I know is in his 40s and still um, in and out of prison on parole for doing things that are legal for anyone else to do, but simply because he has parole conditions as someone who's living under a life sentence. 
he's not a danger. He's not going to commit a violent offense, but he has a beer and he's sent back to prison as uh, as someone living under a life sentence for something that that uh, his, the worst thing that, that he's ever did, of course. And, you know, at, as a 17 year old um, and this I, I think Canadians are concerned about this when they learn more and they think and meet people for whom these sentences are imposed. Well, and in fact, a woman I was speaking to this morning who's in a report, and we'll put the report in the liner notes uh, or the the notes that go along with this, uh, 12 Indigenous Women, the uh, conviction review process we're looking at, SN, um, was was criminalized, is still in prison, has never, ever, ever gotten out on parole um, and in almost, well, three decades now. And, uh, you know, she was convicted at the age of 15, transferred up. Uh, from the youth system. So uh, we have not just people out on parole, but people who can't even get out of the system, particularly women, most particularly Indigenous women. So uh, anybody who's interested in looking at that, and I think uh, whoever you're talking to, let's talk about possibly putting them to work on a couple of these cases too. And we also will include um, a a paper that you did with a number of your um, students, I know, and I'm looking forward to this upcoming one. We'll, when we get that, we can link it in as well. But the one you did comparing jurisdictions um, where there are, uh, you know, where there are um, different differentials in terms of murder um, sentences for murder convictions. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, because as you know, the the comparison, one of the things that struck me right away when I read it is the fact that Portugal, for instance, is one jurisdiction that has made life sentences unconstitutional. Uh, so can we talk a bit about what the range of sentences for murder are? And you mentioned that Canada is an outlier and maybe talk about just how much of an outlier we are in terms of uh, the fact that the average person spends as much as 29 years in prison, even though the parole and eligibility, the highest parole and eligibility period now is 25 years. And Canada, Canadians should not be... Um... Uh, thinking that we are at all um, uh, sort of soft on on murder, and that's that's the real unfortunate thing when something like you know um, the Bisonette case comes up, and and you know obviously there's there's lots that that we can um, uh, think about how we would. Um, address the Islamophobia, racism, and radicalization of young white men in particular in Canada and to try to prevent those kinds of um, uh, hate crimes from happening. Um, and uh, but, but the reality is that, that Canada is very harsh internationally. And, and when we were doing that, that uh, work for that paper with my students, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's research by the Council of Europe. And in Europe, there's a huge range of, um, of uh, treatment of murder uh, in, uh, in various European jurisdictions. There's a number that don't impose life sentences. They don't have a life sentence on their books, a, a place like Norway. Um, they, do ha- they do have, and they had a, a one horrific um, high profile case in which, um, you know, that was tested, right? Um, but, but they don't, and they haven't moved to have a life sentence, as my understanding. Um, there are sometimes be, can be longer sentences in, in particular cases. But um, Portugal is a really interesting example of, of a jurisdiction that has, um, has a constitutional provision 
that says um, no sentence or security measure that deprives or restricts freedom may be perpetual in nature or have an unlimited or undefined duration. And that is recognizing, and that's been something in actually longstanding in Portuguese law. It's not even a recent thing. And it's a commitment to values. And I think this is a value that that actually many um, Canadians do share is the idea. And it's 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 implicit in the Bissonnette and sometimes explicit in the Bissonnette decision that um, that a life sentence by its nature, even even without the long parole and eligibility periods, is um, is inconsistent with many of our values around, um, you know, proportionality and recognizing that that there's a whole range of circumstances under which um, people commit uh, a crime or are convicted of a crime like murder and that um, and that. If, if there is a need for the public to be protected from particular people at particular times, you can have very focused measures to, to address um, true public safety threats. But what we do instead is we use this, and that's the nature of mandatory penalties, is that everybody is treated the same for purposes of this very harsh penalty being a life sentence. And and I think that there has the, the, the fact that Portugal has maintained this constitutional uh, provision that says that that a, that a life sentence is uh, is uh, simply not consistent with their values um, is is really uh, an important example to look at and it shows when you look at, again at the other countries you know like um, Iceland has never meted out life sentences there are other jurisdictions as well that have not, never meted out life sentences um, and that they don't have them on their books or they have um, even not very long determinate sentences in some jurisdictions, it's a maximum of 21 years and that sort of thing. Um, and so the point being that um, Canadians often look to the South and say, well, we're not very harsh by comparison to the US. It's not a great comparator, as I've been saying. We look to these other jurisdictions where there is um, more of a of a recognition of the the the, the fact that, that punishment just simply for its punishment's sake, which is all this is, you can dress it up as denunciation. <laughs> you can dress it up as deterrence. Um, uh, you can dress it up as retribution. But it's fundamentally punishment for its own sake, and it doesn't serve uh, public safety. And we have now, I don't know, 60 years of criminological uh, studies and literature, uh, you know, just uh, books, you know, journal articles stacked up um, to the ceiling showing that people are not deterred by long sentences. That is not how people make decisions or people find themselves, you know, in, in a circumstance on which they take someone else's life or, or uh, you know, engage in other um, conduct that that is harmful. It's, it simply doesn't work that way. And going back to young people, it really doesn't work that way for young people. I mean, the research is very clear that young people, that deterrence is a complete fiction. Um, and in fact, we used to um, recognize that in our in our uh, in our criminal law and the Youth Criminal Justice Act. Again, I'll say is is uh, based on a lot of good research to show that that um, locking up young people is um, is very harmful, completely counterproductive, and again inconsistent with our values. There's even since we passed the Youth Criminal Justice Act, we've we've got more um, research about brain development, and it's even more imperative that we um, that we don't use these um, sentences for young people, but really for anyone, because the the research is clear that they don't they don't deliver on their promises for anyone. Well, in fact, it, it goes back to when I was training to be a teacher, a high school teacher, it was really clear to me that when you don't have cognitive development getting to the abstract level, the ability to think, plan, 
deliberate, understand the consequences until you're sometimes in your 20s, 30s, and some people never have it. Uh, not a big surprise that the Supreme Court of Canada and the Department of Justice in the opposite order, um, came to the conclusion that we we shouldn't even be considering deterrence for young people. But more recently, the Department of Justice uh, has accumulated some of those stacks of studies that you've talked about and has essentially also recognized that uh, the evidence is um, negligible and unconvincing at best and really relies on myths and stereotypes. And I'm curious why you think those myths and stereotypes about deterrence still persist, given that we have, you know, we've removed punishment as an idea in theory, at least from how we raise children, how we educate. Why do we still have it in the criminal legal system? Oh, if I could answer that question, <laughs> it's, just, it's, a, it's the million dollar question. Um, I think it's a simple, it's, you know, people want simple answers to complex problems, right? Um, and and by complex, I mean, they're actually not that complex. There's issues of poverty. And if we actually do the things that we know, we have lots of research to show that if people are not living in poverty, people don't experience, um, you know, racism, uh, it, you know, uh, trauma, uh, abuse, uh, misogyny, uh, you know, violence as a young person, um, they, they are not very likely to be engaging in the kinds of conduct that we um, label as criminal and then we punish um, and then say that we're going to deter other people from doing that. It just, you know, we, we, we know that. So, but, but deterrence, it's interesting because I'm actually just looking at this um, uh, in, in, in another context in relation to sentencing for, uh, for fentanyl trafficking or in relation to, to drug trafficking. Um, it's uh, we now have just so much evidence of the, um, you know, the fact that most of the people who are convicted of trafficking in any substance, any of the controlled substances, are um, uh, usually have their own substance use issues, their own addictions, and they're usually trafficking in relatively small amounts uh, or, uh, you know, um, and, and often to, to um, sometimes paid in drugs and, and to um, support their own addiction. And yet we still have very harsh sentencing uh, laws, and I've been involved in uh, working on an intervention in a case in British Columbia, trying to to um, uh, disrupt those um, those assumptions because they simply don't accord with the with the reasons that people engage in this in this behavior. And we need to decriminalize drugs, and there's all kinds of um, and we're moving slowly in that direction. But it's just another example of the when I look at the the cases. Courts are still very attached. Lawyers are still very attached to these ideas of deterrence. And I think for me, as someone who works teaching future lawyers, um, it's something that I try to talk a lot about in my um, in my classes is that why do we persist in these myths? And if we can't expect the public to um, to question these things, if we're going every day into courtrooms and speaking about deterrence as though it, it really works in the way it does. So I think it's a very deeply uh, embedded idea. But when people actually have the information and when people actually see the evidence, and they don't see it very often in podcasts like this, I hope are ways to do that. Um, Canadians are actually quite, as you said, when when the when the Department of Justice does does those studies and and surveys with Canadians, they actually if they get a little bit of information about how things actually work, um, they will they will not want a, a harsh sentence for its own sake. But yet, when we when we're fed sort of sound bites in the media. This horrible crime happened. 
we need this um, tough sentence. It's it's a, it's a simple calculus that doesn't actually c- comport to reality, but is very, I think, appealing. And uh, and so we just need to keep keep holding our uh, our our politicians, our judges, our our lawyers, our systems to account to actually have evidence based policy. The evidence is simply not there, and so um, why should we be having laws on our books that are expensive and counterproductive and and don't actually deliver on their on their promises well and that are counterproductive to other um principles of sentencing as you've already mentioned like proportionality and rehabilitation and so um so we will also um for listeners who are interested in pursuing this more we'll put in the notes as well the links to the justice the information on the department of justice site so lest you be concerned there's certainly many more um places that you can go for this kind of information but have a look at what the department of justice knows and what the senate reported when uh the delays in the uh, criminal legal system were discussed and the that that report was issued because this whole area was also discussed mm-hmm. there and so uh, really important and more you know another report that we just recently were part of putting out was the senators go to jail and i thought it was very we ended with a quote from one of my colleagues who the first time he went into one of the prisons he wanted to know why we called it a correction system when it was clearly a punishment system so that's someone who was a business is a businessman had never had any involvement with police the the prison system or the criminal legal system before he went in he saw it in a heartbeat so we need to be exposing mm-hmm. this so we'll also link that report for those who are interested in, in that information we've also when we were looking at this issue and as you know um in uh, I've, there have been previous iterations of the bill that uh, Senator Mobina Jaffer has introduced to allow judges the discretion to not impose mandatory minimum penalties in the cases where they aren't repealed. And as part of that, we had the parliamentary budget officer do a costing of that, which again, this note, this will, those of you who are interested more, have a look in the notes uh, because that will be in there as well. And costed what you know the amount and i hate to talk about cost in fiscal terms only because the human and social costs as we've already identified is massive Uh, but let's talk a bit about what we could be you know what the financial cost of incarceration is and think about so that people can think about what we might better be investing those resources in particularly when we think that as your research has shown about half of the women receiving federal sentence or receiving life sentences, receiving, that sounds a bit benign, being sentenced to life in prison are indigenous. Half of the women serving federal prison sentences are indigenous. We've got huge push in the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls inquiry to address the very issues that cause indigenous women in particular to be disappeared, murdered, and the links that those are the very same issues that result in them being made homeless, criminalized and imprisoned and so when we think of what we're spending in cash terms as well as those human costs what we could be investing um you know we're spending at minimum a hundred thousand dollars and corrections tries to keep minimizing how much they're spending on women but the last time we looked at where most indigenous women were in prison they tend to be in maximum security settings or segregation regardless of what terms being used they're now called structured intervention units and all kinds of other things that don't get monitored Uh, but it's as high as half a million dollars and another link we'll put in is when the parliamentary budget officer costed the cost of an omnibus crime bill that the 
the conservatives brought in in 2010, Bill C-10, um, they found that what they were causing for another woman, uh, RA, who's in the 12 women report, to keep her in prison, they could have sent her to Harvard for graduate studies uh, for the amount that they were keeping her. Now, we have boil water advisories still in many um, communities. We have inadequate housing, food insecurity in many indigenous communities. What could we be funding with what we are currently spending now, the tens of billions of dollars to keep people incarcerated, particularly in this case, indigenous women who are, you know, it's a mass incarceration situation. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. We, we could be doing all the things that we know and that the research shows prevent people from harming one another, prevent people from um, using substances in ways that um, that they become addicted and that they then, you know, engage in trafficking. And we we have criminalized those substances. There's so much that we could do um, with with the with those with those monies, Um, starting with um, you've worked, been working on guaranteed livable income, uh, Senator Pate. Um, that's a, a, you know, there's there's so much research, and and people can go to uh, Senator Pate's uh, webpage and resources to find out more about that. Uh, that's something that I um, wholeheartedly support, and and it's 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 clearly evidence based that if people actually have the 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 basic their basic needs met, they're not going to be engaging in these kinds of um, conduct for the most part. We also have to address misogyny, racism, um, uh, you know, toxic masculinity, um, you know, sexual violence in our communities. Um, But Indigenous communities want to do those things. They are desperate for actual resources. Um, We have all these wonderful sentencing provisions about having Indigenous people, um, uh, you know, that, that Imprisonment should be a last resort. We have the so-called Gladue uh, principles from the Supreme Court of Canada in another case called Ipeely saying that we shouldn't be sentencing um, you know, Indigenous people to prison unless it's absolutely necessary, whatever necessary means in those circumstances, but, but as a last resort. And yet, time and time again, you look at the cases and... Um, the courts are saying we don't see the resource, we don't see um, you know the the opportunities in the community. We and the and indigenous communities will say actually we're going to do it even on a shoestring. We're going to try to support this person, but they don't have the resources. The the budget is all going to caging people instead of supporting people in communities. This is even people under sentence. But to even go go um, earlier or upstream in the in in the problem, um, uh, we need. Um, uh, uh, better uh, health care. We need better funding for health care, for education, um, our, you, you know, post-secondary education training programs. All of this could be done. People think, oh, people, again, uh, corrections. It's a correction system. People get vocational training in prison. No, they don't. Um, they, they absolutely do not. They do not do post-secondary education. They barely get resources to do a GED if if they if they fight for that and to get their high school equivalency. There is it is not it is not a, a rehabilitation or correction system at all. Those the resources that are are spent they're spent on security and caging and that is basically it. You can just I mean I, these aren't my numbers these are their own numbers. Go look them up. <laughs> and um, and so it's it's all the kinds of things that make a community. Um, Thrive, uh, you know, uh, housing, education, healthcare, um, training for um, 
you know, for, for vocations, uh, you know, all these things are, are what, what we need the resource to be spent on. And at the same time as we're spending all this money on prison, um, we have more people living in poverty. Um, we have seen through the pandemic though, that when government does provide, um, some supports and they've been, you know, not as much as, as, as necessary, we're seeing that something like guaranteed livable income is the way to go to, to, um, to address these issues, and certainly, um, you know, meaningful, meaningful diversion of, of resources um, to Indigenous communities. It shouldn't be going to you know new prisons, whether they're called you know healing lodges or or uh, minimum security prisons. It, we, we shouldn't be focusing on the resources there. Indigenous communities, both urban and um, you know reserve communities, are desperate for resources to support people to live in those communities. And yet we, we simply are not providing those resources. They're going down this, this black hole um, of punishment. No, and you've said it very well. And uh, for those who are interested in more about some of the work we're doing, we can also link in uh, Bill S-233, which is the bill we've introduced, and um, C-223, which uh, a member of parliament from Treaty 1 territory, Leah Gazan, has introduced, as well as Bill S-230, uh, which was a bill, is a bill, basically the amendments the Senate made to uh, the segregate, the Bill C-83, which introduced the new segregation regime. And um, and so we'll put those links for people who are interested more. I want to come back to what the government is proposing right now in terms of Bill C-5. Um, as you know, the, um, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Call to Action and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry Calls for Justice call for uh, addressing mandatory minimum penalties. Uh, many people have said we should be repealing all mandatory minimum penalties. As you know, um, Senator Jaffer has introduced a bill uh, to basically allow judges in the situations that where, when, if and when C5 passes, any mandatory minimum penalties that aren't repealed would be, uh, the judges would have the discretion to not impose them. What do you see, do you, I mean, from my perspective, quite frankly, it's a half measure, if that, or a quarter measure, it certainly doesn't go the full way. And I think we should have the law commission that's just been reinvigorated, reviewing all of those mandatory minimum penalties. But do you see that as something that is a, uh, at least a step in the right direction? Um, do we need that in C5? What would you be recommending as we move forward? Well, ab absolutely, we need that in, in C5. We need, I mean, it's, um, it, this is so long overdue, uh, you know, pro campaign promises from 2015, um, to, uh, to have meaningful sentencing reform. And this is what we've got. Um, yes, absolutely conditional sentence. That's the other piece of the bill, you know, conditional sentences need to be made, um, available for, uh, you know, not with the limitations and, the, and the carve outs of, of so many of the, of the offenses for which they are most relevant. So these are sentences that would, would be in prison, terms of imprisonment um, to be served in the community under uh, very uh, harsh terms. And, and those are, um, those aren't super, conditional sentences aren't a super progressive um, measure, quite frankly, because they're still conditions, they're still very harsh, um, uh, punitive uh, sentences they require family members to be jailers of their um of their of their family members it imposes those costs on communities in ways that is that is um uh, not compensated and is you know uh, has its own issues but it's at least a way of of um you know uh, 
not putting so many people and not so many Indigenous people in particular into prison. So that's one thing that the C5 does. But it's a very limited, um, you know, um, you know, step. It's, it's, it's of course needed to be made, should have been made long ago and has now been made. So we now have conditional sentences, you know, that are going to be uh, the way they were, they were intended to operate. But we still have all these mandatory sentences, including the life sentence, which is something that, as you know, I'm, I've been researching for some time now. And, and it, it very much should have been part of this bill. I think there's a there's a reluctance by politicians, unfortunately, to do to follow the evidence on this, to look at what actually um, uh, is is necessary, what actually works, and what clearly does not work. Also, to look at the um, if we're talking about um, mass incarceration of Indigenous people, it's Indigenous people and Indigenous women who are most disproportionately subject to uh, to life sentences, as you've said. And um, and these sentences, the, the safety valve should be there. There should be a way to, to uh, if we're going to maintain this harsh regime, which I think we should have a, a much broader look at whether the whole punitive nature of our, of our, um, of our sentencing system is serving Canadians. Uh, if we're talking about um, other things to link, I recommend uh, a paper written by Marie-Eve Sylvestre. She's actually Dean of the um, uh, Droit Civil uh, at University of Ottawa uh, Common Law, wrote a wonderful paper commissioned by the Department of Justice about the principles sh- that should animate a, a, uh, a our sentencing system um, that are about restraint and about um, evidence-based and about relations and about um, restoration. And uh, and there's a wonderful paper that she's written that um, I can send uh, a- a to link into this. Um, but I mean, we, we need that much broader look. But at a, as a, at a minimum, we need to be not um, perpetuating these mandatory minimum sentences that don't allow judges to meet out a proportionate sentence. Um, you know, by by simply not making Bill C five um, a more meaningful answer to the question of uh, you know are we going to actually address these unconstitutional sentences um, the the Parliament has unfortunately going to be leaving this squarely in the courts and we're going to continue to have the piecemeal. Um, declarations of unconstitutionality and that doesn't serve anyone and it's also not in keeping with a um quite frankly a government that has said that they are the party of the charter <laughs> and that they want to um they want to advance uh charter uh values and that they take those uh, into all their policy considerations uh to me this is an example of uh, a half measure unfortunately i do think uh, you know it's 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 a step in the right direction but it is it is absolutely not adequate and it wouldn't take much to at least you know make it much more useful and uh, and I do hope that the law commission can be reinvigorated to address these issues and I, I hope that life sentences are one of the first things that they take on. I'd be happy to support that um, that look with with my own research um, but um, part- particularly and I'll say it again about young people this is something that's urgent for us to address and uh, and this bill doesn't uh, you know stays far away from it unfortunately well and in fact the criminological research that we've been able to uh, obtain and the data from justice itself shows that even even what they say it will do is not it's not going to be achieved that it may reduce uh to some extent uh the numbers of uh indigenous and black 
prisoners in provincial jails, but it actually won't have any appreciable impact on federal incarceration rates, and which is where, you know, the the a lot of the attention has been paid publicly recently. So. I look forward to uh, more of your research on this. I, I also will also link um, a recent report or a paper from um, a woman named Sarah Chaster, who um, is now a Crown prosecutor and also recommends many of these sorts of uh, changes that be uh, implemented. So uh, we look forward to this and thank you so much for all the work you do every day on these issues and so many more. And uh, we look forward to uh, hopefully seeing some changes when the government reconvenes and we uh, start looking at Bill C-5 and hopefully we'll see an amended Bill C-5 pass through both the Senate and the House of Commons. Well, thank you for this conversation and for your leadership on these issues. It's it's really important to, to see um, and heartening to see, you know, people uh, in the Senate and some in the House of Commons as well who are who are working to advance um, justice in this way. And uh, and it's it's uh it's wonderful to see so thank you